Uh, well, before we get going on the main topic, uh, a lot of people have asked me or made comments about the condition of our country and, and uh, the Supreme Court decision and all that. So I'll just make a, a few really brief remarks. But we shouldn't be surprised as our country falls apart. We shouldn't be surprised at all. I mean, the, the good Lord sent... How many times have the popes come over here? And if you look at history, popes haven't been on tour very often in the past 2,000 years. And certainly, a Blessed John Paul II, I know in his 1979 visit and other t- times subsequent to that, told us directly, America, abortion will be the test of your survival as a nation. Well, if that was a test of our survival as a nation, we flunk. We flunk with a great big F. So that's not the only one. Um, there's four sins that cry out to heaven for vengeance. Okay, there's the sin that's very popular in San Francisco. That cries out for heaven for vengeance. If that thing uh, is promoted or not uh, punished, if the people that have suffer from that affliction aren't helped, and if we actually promote it like we're doing, that alone is enough to, to render the end, be the end of a country. I mean, you, you saw what happened to the, the cities in, in, the, in the scriptures. They, they died in, in flames of fire. Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine two days ago. He's a lawyer. He was telling me he just had to be up recently in Illinois for one of these new kind of marriage cases. And so here, at, at, here in the situation on the other side, they have the ACLU, land illegal, Two huge Chicago law firms, the attorney general from the state of Illinois, who's supposed to be defending the law, but he's on the other side, and the DA from Chicago. That's on the other side. And it was him against them. That's just how it's going. The election isn't going to change any of this, no matter who gets elected. That They've got the momentum. That's how that's going to go. So, well, we've got that. Another sin that cries out to heaven for vengeance is the shedding of innocent blood. Abortion. So we're two for two. A third one is defrauding labor of his wages. You know, that's things like slavery or exporting jobs to places. You know, in the, in the Chinese system, the Lao guy, which is their camps, every uh, prison camp has a factory number. Why would that be? Because they're manufacturing stuff for us. So you can get sent to prison for crimes like being a member of the Legion of Mary be a member of the underground church, i.e. the Catholic church, and then work for pennies or whatever so that we can have cheap things. So defrauding the labor of wages. Uh, the fourth one is oppressing the widow and the children. We have contraceptive imperialism. If, uh, if other nations are going to have any kind of relationship with us, what are we always trying to pressure them to do? Contraception, sterilization, abortion, etc. We're four for four. Nations have to be judged in this life. They don't have an eternal life. And God is just, so nations will be judged in this life. And th- so this shouldn't be a surprise to us as we watch our country fall apart. We have a role to work on our holiness, because God put us here to be salt in this particular time in history. He's not surprised. And so we have a very important role to play, if, even if it's just being faithful when it seems like no one else is. But that is our role. We, don't, we shouldn't get depressed at all if things are going down. We need to pray for souls, but not let it get to us. 
what? Why should we let it get to us? We love our country, but we don't love what's going on. We just need to pray for a purification. We have to be faithful. That doesn't mean we quit fighting or go hole up and, you know, crawl in a hole and try to seal ourselves in. You can't get away from it anyway. So we have a job to do. You know, if you have time, you could read The City of God. The City of God is really a theology of history. It's written by that great uh, Saint, Saint Augustine. And what's he writing? He's writing after the, the, the Roman Empire collapsed. They couldn't believe it. Because the Roman Empire really was something. We're small potatoes compared to them, and I'm, I love my country, but we're nothing compared to the kind of, and, and, and for the, the amount of time they've lasted all that. And as, as it's collapsing under, under the barbarians and, and whatnot, nobody can believe this. And so he writes The City of God, which is really a theology of history, and it'll help, help you keep uh, things in perspective if you, if you want to go down that path. I'm not going to go through the whole City of God right now. But we need to be at peace about this. We need to have a peace, because the important thing is, Am I in the state of grace? Am I doing my duty in my state life? Because if I'm doing my duty in my state life and I'm in a state of grace, I'm doing what God put me here to do. If everybody did that, we wouldn't have these kind of things. But we don't have to ask. We have to answer for us. So we've got to be peaceful about this as Catholics. It's not delightful. I don't say this on each other, but it's just what it is. And we just have to be at peace and say, thanks be to God, I have the true faith, and I know what I, what I need to do to be saved. I need to stay in the state of grace and do my duty and my state in life. And that's what God expects of me, and that's what he put me here to do. And that's why we come to Mass and receive the sacraments, so we have the strength to do this, which would be impossible otherwise. So let's not be disheartened. Okay, that was the sermon before the sermon. According to the missionaries, before they were driven out by the communists, when strangers entered the highlands which lie along the Burmese-Chinese border, the local chief would order the paths to be closed by tying together long elephant grass over the paths. When the travelers encountered this sign, they would stop and ask, Who is in blood covenant with this tribe? If someone was found, even if it were the lowliest porter, his covenant gave the entire party free passage to the principal village. The man would go in as an ambassador to meet with the chief. If no one was in covenant with the tribe, and the wisp of grass was broken and the party passed on, the trespassers forfeited their lives. When an attack awaited them, perhaps that night or later, the trespassers would then be driven back the way they came. But what does it mean to be in blood covenant with a tribe? After two men agreed to make a blood covenant with one another, there was a public and solemn ceremony where blood was drawn from the thigh of each of the men, becoming blood brothers. Then it was mixed together. Then each man dipped his finger in the blood and touched it to his lips, sometimes drank it. Typically, a feast, a common meal, was associated with the ceremony. It bound the parties together in the strongest possible way. It's not only an agreement of peace, but a promise of mutual assistance in both war and peace. When the chief, standing as a representative of his tribe, entered into blood covenant, it covered the whole tribe. When a father, standing as the head of his family, entered into blood covenant, it covered his entire family. A foreigner in covenant was an adopted member of the tribe with all the same rights since the two parties were seen as literally sharing in the same life. That was in the Burmese highlands. In Africa, 
While he was searching for Dr. Livingston, Stanley, the great African explorer, found attacks, ambushes, and even cannibalism lurking around every river bend and dark trail, unless he was in blood covenant with the chiefs, in which case he and his party could travel freely through even the most hostile cannibal territory. Right here in the States, the blood covenant was commonly practiced among people of the Sioux nations, among others, the same kind of consequences as you saw in Burma or Africa. The same practice were recorded by early historians in Rome, in Greece, in Norway, among the Germanic tribes. Blood covenanting was practiced in Australia, the Pacific Islands, South America, the Middle East, literally all over the world. I've actually been present at something like that with a couple drunk cowboys, I mean, watching it. Same kind of thing, but they didn't make it up. You know, it's just a little scary watching all the knives flying around and stuff, but uh, why blood? What's the significance of blood, and why is so much importance attached to it? All over the world, men share a common view. They see blood as life, and so the offering of blood is seen as the offering of life, and the sharing of blood as the sharing of life. The bond created when men share in each other's blood, when they're blood brothers, when they've made a blood covenant, is seen as binding them closer together than even birth brothers. In fact, it's seen as giving these men a share in the same life and even the same virtues. And so they see the breaking of this covenant as a crime worthy of death. And throughout the world, men men have also had the notion of the divine acceptance of blood as a divine acceptance of life, or the practice of offering up a substitutionary blood sacrifice by killing an animal and pouring his blood out as a substitution for the man's own blood, as a sacrifice to placate their gods. Men everywhere have also had the common idea of being able to establish a blood covenantal relationship with their gods by offering them blood, which is why when a Satan worshiper sells his soul, he signs the compact in his own blood. He's pledging his life by means of his bloody signature to be bound forever to the demonic life of Satan in exchange for certain worldly things. And besides being found in every nation and culture, similar beliefs about the significance of blood and about blood covenanting are literally found from the beginning to the end of the Holy Scriptures. How did men all over the world, from every tribe and nation, get the same general beliefs about blood and becoming blood brothers with one another and even with the gods, which are similar to those taught in Scripture? The fathers of the church. Now the fathers were talking about the early saints who were taught by the apostles or taught by men that were taught by the apostles. The fathers of the church point out that when we find that men everywhere have similar beliefs or teachings or customs similar to those found in Holy Scripture, the reason for the similarity is that when men were scattered out all over the world after the town of Babel, after the Tower of Babel, they didn't forget all the teachings that had been handed down from Adam through Noah, to their fathers. The differences that we see are due to corruption from the weakness of men and the interference of devils, excepting, of course, for the case of the people of Israel who are preserved from teaching error by a special grace of God. All this is part of God's providential plan so that men would find it easy to understand the true faith when they were evangelized. 
So let's stop and take a few look, a quick look at a few blood covenant examples we find in sacred scripture. Look at three examples from the New Testament, look at, or from the Old Testament, then we'll look at a few examples from the New Testament, and we'll go, we'll close at that point. So the Old Testament. First, let's consider the covenant of Abraham when he enters into a blood covenant with God. The sign of this blood covenant, circumcision. Maybe you wonder what the point of circumcision is. The point is that God, Abraham gives God of his personal blood from the very source of his fatherhood. What Abraham is doing at God's command is pledging himself and his seed, the tribe of all those who shall be descended from him, into this blood covenantal relationship with God. In other words, Abraham stands for his descendants, like the Burmese chief stood for his tribe. And so this one man enters into the blood covenant with God on behalf of himself and all his descendants. Obviously, God couldn't exchange blood with his beloved Abraham because he didn't have any blood to exchange. But he accepts Abraham's blood sacrifice and rewards it by freeing all those who enter into that covenant from original sin. Jump to the time of Moses. When the Jews were being held in bondage to Pharaoh and Moses was calling down the plagues on Egypt, remember how they were protected from the angel of death on the night of the Passover. They had to take a spotless lamb. They had to sacrifice him to God. And then they had to take his blood and mark his doorposts. According to the rabbis, it was done by marking the top and the bottom like this, then the two sides like that. And we can think about that. The sign of the blood covenant with God was the sign of the cross, made with the blood of a spotless lamb dedicated to God. Then they had to cook and eat that lamb, the covenantal meal. If they didn't mark their doorways with the sign of the cross, marked with the lamb's blood, and if they didn't eat the entire lamb, then they weren't protected by the blood, and the angel of death would kill their firstborn sons. So there we see both that notion of a common meal and also that idea of protection from harm, of safe passage, given to those who are in a blood covenant. Finally, for the Old Testament purposes, let's take a look at the Day of Atonement. It's one of the major feasts in the Jewish calendar. In preparation for the ceremonies on this day, the Jews went up to the temple and confessed their sins to the priest. Confession is nothing new. In the Old Covenant, it cost you something. What did you have to do in the Old Covenant? You had to have a sin offering. So it cost you. If you were poor, you had to have turtle doves offered. If you had more, it was a ram or a bull. It cost something. Our Lord hadn't shed his precious blood yet. So they went up to confess their sins to the priest. During that day, a man had to go behind the veil of the temple. There was only one man in the world who could go behind the veil, and only after all kinds of careful preparations and purifications. And he could only do it on this one day. That man was a high priest. He'd go behind the veil into the holiest place in the temple, the room called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant had been placed. Why? Why did he go in there? He went in to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the curtain and on the Ark, the substitutionary blood of the Covenant, to make atonement for his sins and the sins of all people, since the high priest was a representative of all the people before God. So he stood in place of the people, just as the chief stands for the tribe, or Abraham stood for his descendants. When the high priest did this, he had little bells tied to the hemline of his cassock and a rope tied to one ankle. Why? If the bells quit jingling, the men on the other side of the veil would realize he had done something wrong and had been struck dead, so they could pull his body out with the rope. 
That's the punishment for old-fashioned liturgical abuse. When the high priest survived, he'd have a big feast for his friends because a blood covenant with God or the priesthood of God is not without danger. Outside during all this, a piece of scarlet wool had been pinned up in view of the congregation. Two goats were selected. One was sacrificed, and the other had the sins of Israel liturgically laid upon him by the priest. It was like this, pressing down on his head. So they take his hand, you can see the cross made by the thumbs, and they press down on the head of that goat. And then that goat was led out of the city walls by a Gentile and thrown over a cliff. This goat was known as a scapegoat. When the scapegoat died, the blood-red cloth, right before the eyes of the entire congregation, would turn white. Reminds us of what God says in Isaiah 118. If your sins be as scarlet, they shall be made white as snow. And if they be red as crimson, they shall be white as wool. This visible public miracle, and it was visible, a visible public miracle, happened every year on the Day of Atonement. And the people would be overjoyed since they knew the sacrifice had been acceptable to God and the debt of life they owed to God for their sins had been paid for by the blood of the scapegoat. Because his blood had been acceptable, their blood, their lives were no longer owed to God for sin. As the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. We've taken a very quick look at a few of the blood covenant teachers in the Old Testament. Now let's look quickly at the fulfillment of these incidents in the New Testament. First, the Day of Atonement, the scarlet cloth and the scapegoat. The Talmud, now those are books written by the rabbis and they're holy to the Jews, describes this very ceremony. And it notes that for some reason, this visible and public miracle ended 40 years before the destruction of the temple. The cloth remained scarlet, which was a sign that the people remained in their sins, that the sacrifice of scapegoat was not pleasing to God Almighty. Why? What happened? Well, the temple was destroyed by the Roman legions in 70 AD, so do the math. Forty years before, the high priest Caiaphas, speaking in the name of the people, said it was fitting that one man should die for the sins of the people. That one man was Jesus Christ himself, who became the scapegoat, not just for the sins of the Jews, the men who were already in blood covenant with God through Abraham, but also for the Gentiles, all the other nations of the world. He became a scapegoat during his agony in the garden when he took upon himself all our sins, every single sin from the first sin in the garden to the last sin that will be committed before the crack of doom. He intended to offer up his precious blood, his life, the life of God, And he literally sweat blood of thinking of how many people for whom he was pouring out his precious blood, for whom he poured out his life to save them from their sins. He literally sweat blood thinking of how many of them would turn away and plunge over the cliff into that sea of eternal fire. He took those sins, pressed down by the cross, just like the cross had been pressed down on the scapegoat, and carried that burden outside the walls of Jerusalem, being led to his death, by the Gentile Roman soldiers, just like a Gentile led the scapegoat burdened with the sins of the Jews to his death outside the walls of the city. Remember how the high priest laid his hands, would lay the sins of the people on the scapegoat like this. This sign is still done. And at the Hanukkah, when the boys ring the bell right before they go up for the consecration, 
That's exactly what the priest is doing over the bread and wine. That's the exact position the priest's hands have over the sacrifice about to be consecrated. Remember how the high priest had to pass behind the veil into the Holy of Holies. We know, as we heard in today's gospel about our Lord's sacred heart being pierced and outflow the blood and water, the precious blood, the blood of God, the lifeblood of God, as that flowed out as an eternal pleasing sacrifice, we know that when his sacred heart was pierced, the veil in the temple, the veil of the Holy of Holies, was torn open. No longer would men have to turn to the sacrifice of animals and the sprinkling of their blood by a descendant of Aaron to redeem men from their sins. Now a blood covenant open to all men was established between God and man. A blood covenant made with the precious blood of God himself. Something that was not possible in the times of Abraham. Just as the Burmese chief stood for his tribe, or Abraham for his descendants, Jesus Christ, the eternal high priest, stood in for all mankind. St. Paul explains in his letter to the Hebrews that when Christ came as high priest, he entered once for all into the sanctuary, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made by hands, a copy of the true one, but heaven itself, that he might now appear before God on our behalf. Once for all he has appeared to take away sin by his sacrifice. Do you know what our Lord is doing right now at this very minute? He's passed once for all to that heavenly sanctuary as our high priest. He's interceding for us before the heavenly father. He's showing his wounds. And he doesn't have to have bells on his cassock and a rope around his ankle. He's interceding for us. He lives to intercede for us. Remember how the Burmese man in blood covenant with the chief will be the ambassador for his party, going through the barrier to secure safe passage for his party? Christ our Lord is our ambassador. He's one in substance with the Father. and He's gone through the barrier into the heavenly city to secure safe passage for his blood brothers here on earth. Now the Passover. Remember the sign of the Old Testament blood covenant with God was a sign of the cross made with the blood of a spotless lamb dedicated to God. Then the entire lamb had to be eaten, the covenantal meal. St. John the Baptist tells us who the real lamb of God was, who came to take away not just the sins of the Jews, but the sins of the whole world. And at that last supper, that last Passover supper, the apostles entered into the new and everlasting blood covenant with Jesus Christ by eating the flesh and drinking the precious blood of the eternal Lamb of God in the most blessed sacrament of the altar. We've also entered into the New Testament blood covenant by our baptism and our communion. And everyone who's blood covenanted Jesus shares in his nature. We share in his virtues, his divine virtues, if we're in right covenantal relationship with him. If we've allowed that precious blood to wash over us and through us, wash away the sin and wickedness and snares of the devil, if we let it strengthen us in virtue, the supernatural virtues, the supernatural powers that God has placed in us by virtue of this covenant, powers like faith, hope, and charity that are supernatural, and especially that supernatural life of grace, which makes it possible for us to get to heaven when we die and to live there once we got there. We share in 
And we have one and the same life, that divine life of Jesus, when we're in the state of grace. Because Jesus was circumcised according to the law, he entered into the blood covenant between God and the seed of Abraham. So by living through him and in his life, by our baptism, we become heirs of Abraham and his promises, the promises rejected by Caiaphas so long ago. That's why in the canon of the Mass, we can talk about Abraham as being our father in the faith. And it's literally true. Because we have the life of Christ in us. And he's a son of Abraham. We become members of Christ's body, the mystical body of Christ. He's the head, and we're the members. We share in the same life, the same supernatural life, and we're enlivened by the same precious blood. See, the Catholic Church is Jesus Christ living on in his mystical body, living and working in his members to save men from sin. And if we're in blood covenant with Christ, if we're his blood brothers and we die without betraying him, or perhaps if we have betrayed him, but we've gone to sacrament of confession and been washed clean again in his precious blood, we can pass through the veil into that heavenly city. And no one else can. If you're not in blood covenant with our Lord when you die, we haven't, we haven't betrayed him, you can't pass through the veil. It's totally impossible. There's no technological means to reach heaven. Can't build a bridge there. Can't shoot a rocket there. No amount of technology, willpower, ingenuity can get a man through that barrier. It is totally supernatural. It's utterly and totally beyond our powers. It is only possible in Christ. It is only possible in Christ. There's no salvation outside of him. He's the only ambassador that can possibly lead us through that barrier. Let's close. Today we've taken a real quick look at a fraction of the blood covenant teachings in the Old Testament. We've seen that circumcision involving shedding blood from the very source of fatherhood is a sign and means of the blood covenant between Abraham and God and Abraham's descendants. We've seen that the Jews were protected from attack by the death angel by making the sign of the cross with the blood of the Paschal Lamb on the doorpost and by eating the whole and entire Paschal Lamb. We've seen the high priest passing through the veil to offer blood to God in the Holy of Holies. We've seen a man standing in place of all the people in the case of the covenant of Abraham or the Day of Atonement. We've seen the flesh and blood of a spotless lamb or of a goat protecting people in the case of the Passover and the Atonement. We've also taken a quick look at the fulfillment of these blood covenant incidents in the New Testament. We've seen how Jesus became the perfect and eternal scapegoat by taking all the sins upon himself in the garden. We've seen how he's the eternal high priest who passed behind the veil into the heavenly holy of holies and has continued presenting his precious blood to the heavenly Father. We've seen how he's the spotless and eternal Lamb of God, whose cross protects and saves us from eternal death, and whom we receive, whole and entire, body, blood, soul, and divinity, the most blessed sacrament of the altar. We've seen how by entering into the new and eternal covenant of blood with Christ, we become members of his body and heirs to the promises of Abraham. And finally, we've seen how there's no salvation outside of Christ, since he alone can pass through the heavenly veil and be the ambassador on our behalf. Today, 
Let us renew our devotion to our Lord. Let us thank God that he's established us in this blood covenant with him. Let us be serious, very serious, about us, each one of us, keeping our blood covenant with the Lord.